It is easier to automate the mass exploitation and data theft of victim organizations than it is to attempt to move laterally across an enterprise and deploy encryptors because there's a decent amount of, of manual work that needs to be put into that. And when you do that, it just takes a lot of time. And again, this isn't the largest team out there. And so I think from their perspective, I think they were hoping that they'd make a lot of money because I think they made a lot of money earlier this year and they didn't need to deploy encryptors. They probably thought that they were going to pay a decent amount of money. Welcome to another episode of the Defenders Advantage podcast. I am your host, Luke McNamara. And joining me today is Charles Carmichael, the CTO for Mandiant Consulting. Charles, great to have you back on the program. Great. Great to be here. So there have been a, a slew of notable zero days this year uh, and in recent months, many of which have been the sort of continuation of the trend of China Nexus APTs, uh, exploiting edge devices that we've been seeing for some time. Uh, but what we're discussing today is a different uh, compromise and usage of, of zero days. Um, this is the MoveIt file transfer service uh, exploitation by Fin11. This has been in the news for a while. You've been talking about this, but for folks that aren't aware, just to kind of get them up to speed, what do we know about the MoveIt exploitation at this point? Yeah, so you know, roughly around May 27th, we started seeing the mass exploitation of a zero-day vulnerability in the MoveIt uh, managed file transfer product, which basically enabled the Fin11 group, or they call themselves CLOP, to get access to a large number of MoveIt instances and steal data from those instances. And what we've learned from prior mass exploitation events associated with Fin11 is that they tend to use that stolen data to extort organizations. And they made a lot of money in the past. And this is now the third time that we've seen a campaign that looks just like this. It started off in uh, December 2020 when they were mass exploiting a vulnerability in the Excelion FTA product. We saw it earlier this year when they mass exploited the um, zero-day vulnerability in the Fortran GoAnyWare product. And now we're seeing it with uh, the Progress Software MoveIt solution. And what's different this time is that the threat actor is dealing with a tremendous amount of volume of stolen data and volume of victim organizations. And so we're definitely seeing things that are different this time around than what we've seen in the past. And probably the most notable difference that we're seeing is it's very clear that the threat actor is overwhelmed with the volume of victims. And instead of reaching out to the victims directly and letting them know that they've been uh, compromised and that they're being extorted, they actually asked victim organizations to reach out to them. And they did this by way of posting an update on their victim shaming site saying, you know, they raised their hand, they took credit for the attack. They said that, um, you know, if you were a victim, reach out to us by emailing us at this email address. And if you don't do it by a specific date, we're going to start to publish your name on our shaming site and publish your stolen data. And that's been going on for the last several weeks now. And this is something that, uh, you know, this group, I think it was maybe a comment you had made in one of the interviews where you were talking about this, um, that they were kind of maybe in a rush to as widely exploit this with respect to as many different organizations as possible, uh, and then are now dealing with kind of the aftermath or dealing with the management of all these different victims, which presents its kind of own challenge to them. Yeah, that's right. Look, this is not necessarily the largest hacking crew out there. You know, they, they've got a, a small size team of core members that uh, conducted this intrusion operation. 
And anytime you know a team handles such a large volume of victim organizations and, and data from those organizations, you, you run into an issue of how do you handle um, you know, all this data that you've stolen? How do you handle the communications with so many different organizations? And how do you keep your head straight when you're talking to so many different victims? And so uh, it, it's it's definitely notable uh, in this situation that everybody's overwhelmed. The threat actors overwhelmed, victims are overwhelmed, law enforcement, incident response organizations. You know, it's been, um, you know, it's been the primary lives for a lot of folks over the past several weeks that are dealing with this. And, and it's going to continue to be a problem for the next several weeks, months, and years as, as victim organizations deal with the fallout of these incidents. There's the litigation, the class action lawsuits. This, this is going to have a very long tail. And it wasn't just the or it isn't just the direct customers of MoveIt that have to deal with this issue. It's the partners of those organizations that sent data to those companies whose instances were compromised. It's the companies that didn't send data to any of these organizations through MoveIt, but sent data to them through other means, but had those other organizations share information or post information um, on their MoveIt instance that was um, um, compromised. And so it's a, um, you know, it's going to have a pretty long tail as everybody tries to understand the, the scope and the exposure and the impact of this. Going a little bit deeper into how this fits with previous Fin11 operations. And, and as you noted, you know, historically associated with CLOP ransomware. Uh, but this was not an operation that involved ransomware. Um, and I wonder, you know, maybe if you can speak to the fact that this is a group that has had a particular focus over the years in some of their operations, in targeting file transfer services and exploiting those in particular, um, given that, you know, from them at least, there's this increasing focus on data theft as the primary, in this case, you know, sole means of, of extortion, do those things kind of go hand in hand in that the targets they're going after because of the way that they're extorting their victims, um, targeting the file transfer service, you know, makes a lot of sense for them. Yeah. Look, I, I think, you know, this group, has a lot of experience doing this, and they've made a decent amount of money through prior campaigns. I don't know that their first campaign was very successful from a you know from a, a revenue perspective. So when they hacked into organizations through the Excelion FDA product, many organizations that were hacked didn't even know they were hacked. They learned about it when the threat actor posted their name and their data on the victim shaming site, and the reason for that is because. Um, it's, it's kind of ironic and comical, but the threat actor actually attempted to email a lot of victim organizations in the um, January 2021 um, and beyond timeframe. And a lot of their emails were getting caught by spam filters. And so the victim organizations never actually saw the extortion note. Uh, and they didn't even know that they were hacked and they didn't know that they were being extorted until they saw their names on the shaming site. And that actually happened uh, earlier this year as well. A lot of organizations just simply didn't know that they were going to be that they were um, that they were hacked. Now they knew that there was an issue because Fortra had gone public with a security event and, and a mass exploitation situation. Um, but a lot of victims weren't actually successfully getting uh, the extortion communications. And so what we saw the threat actor do was they ended up uh, engaging a call center to reach out to certain victim organizations. And they would call employees and say that uh, they're now being extorted and to go to this shaving site or this communications portal so that they could uh, negotiate with the, uh, the, the, uh, the threat actor. And what I found earlier this year was there, there were a number of organizations that felt compelled to pay the extortion demand um, because they were really worried about the data that was stolen um, being published on the internet. And so I think in this situation, because 
the threat actor had a decent amount of success earlier this year with the mass exploitation and extortion of Fortra customers. I think they were hopeful that if they did a mass data theft and extortion campaign against a large number of companies this time around, they'd get paid. And if you just think about it from an operational perspective, uh, it is easier to automate the mass exploitation and data theft of victim organizations than it is to attempt to move laterally across an enterprise and deploy encryptors because there's a decent amount of, of manual work that needs to be put into that. And when you do that, it just takes a lot of time. And again, this isn't the largest team out there. And so I think from their perspective, I think they were hoping that they'd make a lot of money because I think they made a lot of money earlier this year and they didn't need to deploy encryptors. They probably thought that they were going to pay a decent amount of money. Now, I don't want to teach threat actors how to extort better, but what you find is threat actors that create a lot of pressure and um, create a lot of chaos for victims by deploying encryptors and locking people out of their data and by stealing uh, information and, and threatening to publish it on the internet and doing other things that, are, that apply pressure to organizations. Those are typically companies that feel more compelled to pay extortion demands. It just, it wasn't practical for them to do it right now because I think they were hoping for a larger volume of victims, which in turn would have made uh, more organizations pay. What's actually pretty fascinating about that is in a way it actually had somewhat of an opposite effect because a lot of victims today are saying, I'm not going to pay the extortion demand because you know what, we are one of many victims that are dealing with this and it's not as bad for us if we are one of hundreds of organizations dealing with this as opposed to to being maybe one of tens or, or you know 20 or 30 organizations dealing with this. There's more pressure on the companies that um, feel like they are um, kind of uh, in, in a more unique situation than what a lot of companies are feeling today. We know that you know threat actors in this space, um, we've seen kind of adopt uh, tactics from others in this group that are successful in certain things. I think we've seen that in general with the, the trend towards data theft. Um, within multifaceted extortion, you know, I think it was maybe Maze or was one of the first to start doing right. it at the end of 2019. Um, and then other groups saw how powerful of a tactic that could be. At the same time, we still see obviously ransomware. Um, we just saw, you know, the largest port in Japan get hit with a ransomware attack, whether it's a, a target like that or manufacturing that frequently is in the, in the top uh, most targeted sectors from the side of activity. Organizations that have to maintain uptime. Um, that can, you know, trace a real dollar amount uh, to downtime from disruptive attacks. Uh, ransomware seems to still work for for those as an effective means to extort them. But obviously, we've seen more threat actors kind of shift to this data theft model uh, for extortion for kind of the reasons you noted um, earlier. With some of the challenges that, you know, Fin11 has publicly run into with this that you've brought up, um, how do you think that might change or impact how other threat actors in the larger space kind of approach uh, this and what this sort of means for this sort of the makeup of multifaceted extortion being ransomware and data theft. Yeah. Look, I, I think in general, most threat actors that have the ability to deploy encryptors will deploy encryptors. I, I think what we have observed is a situation where it is not practical um, to deploy encryptors um, or the attacker just simply doesn't have the ability, the technical ability to deploy encryptors. I think that actually accounts for more the most situations where um, there isn't an, an encryptor that's actually deployed. It, it's not that common for threat actors to just say, you know what, uh, I'm not going to deploy an encryptor. Uh, I'm just going to do data theft and I'm going to try to make money by, by doing data theft alone. 
Uh, now, for what it's worth, there's certainly some threat actors that say, I'm not going to deploy an encryptor because that creates a little bit more heat for me because I'm causing a, a real business disruption to an organization. And um, you know, there are certainly some threat actors that have chosen to do that. But, but I think in general, most threat actors feel like if you create a significant and unbearable amount of pain against an organization, it increases the likelihood of that organization paying an extortion demand. And so if the attacker has the ability to do multifaceted extortion, to disrupt business operations, to steal data from an organization, and to apply pressure in a variety of other ways, I think they will do that if they believe that there's an ability for them to get paid by the victim organization. The other thing to keep in mind is um, there is definitely a judgment call that most of these threat actors you know, uh, consider when they're extorting a company. You know, if they don't believe that there's a likelihood or decent likelihood of that organization paying, they tend to move on because they don't want to waste their time in you know, applying so much pressure to one company that has no ability or desire to, to make a payment. The only time, not the only time, but you know, the, the threat actor will apply a lot of pressure and embarrass an organization that chooses not to pay, not because they're expecting that company to pay, but because they want to make an example out of them and create leverage for future victims. And they could point back to that previous victim and say, hey, they didn't pay and look at all the damage that we did to them. And I think there's an important point that, um, that we should all know about why victim organizations choose to pay extortion demands. You know, I, I categorized it into three main areas. Num number one, most organizations actually have backups, um, but they're paying for a decryptor because maybe their backups were destroyed or maybe their backups are failing, or maybe they're just trying to accelerate the recovery process. And they leverage backups, but they also leverage a decryptor to try to get some economies of scale and to try to recover their environment quicker. Most companies did not architect their backup and recovery environment to be resilient enough to deal with cyber attacks where every single server or workstation or laptop was encrypted or had some level of access or encryption by a threat actor. Now, people architected backup environments to withstand data center outages or natural disasters, so you, where you fail over from one data center to another. So that's a big challenge that a lot of companies are now dealing with the realities of. So that's reason number one why people pay to accelerate the recovery or because there is some disruption or dis, uh, dis, uh, you know destruction of, uh, of backup data. Second reason is because certain victim organizations feel like the value of the data that was stolen is too important to them for it to be shown and made available on the public internet. And so people think about what is the harm that could be created to either the corporation or to the actual owners of the data if it's exposed to the internet. And there's a great example from Australia um, from last year where a health insurance organization lost very sensitive data from, um, uh, you know, uh, they lost it to a threat actor and the government told them not to pay the extortion demand and they didn't. And the threat actor ended up publishing very sensitive data of the people of Australia and the people in Australia, they, they revolted. They said, hey, you know, the harm is imposed on us as the patients uh, and the insureds of this health insurance organization and their sensitive data was published and it created a whole lot of uh, drama associated with, uh, um, you know, with extortion payments in the future. And what I found is that actually a lot of organizations today that lose very sensitive details about, uh, about patients or about just general people, 
they're starting to feel a little bit more inclined to pay extortion demands just because of the, the potential backlash. And the third reason why people pay is because they just want the threat actor to go away. And there's a common misconception that if you pay a threat actor, you're going to get re-extorted. And look, that certainly happens. We sometimes see different threat actors that had no idea that the victim organization paid a different threat actor. Yeah. Rehacking will happen um, all the time. But in general, you know, the more quote unquote credible threat actors that, uh, you know, have a reputation and a brand, they tend to not want to re-extort companies because they don't want to create this perception that if you pay them, you will get a negative outcome. You're thinking about just with your point number two there, that's also uh, a situation where even having backups and being able to successfully restore from backups doesn't prevent that sort of extortive activity. Yeah, exactly. Uh, as yeah, in and- one advantage there is that the threat actor, if they're willing to kind of leak that data, and that's the primary risk that you're worried about from you know, whether it's a regulatory or privacy or uh, fear of lawsuits, like that's still an effective extortion vector. Yeah, it, it is. And look, paying a threat actor to not publish the data that they stole doesn't absolve you from your data breach disclosure obligations and your reporting obligations. So if there is a, you know, a, a legal or a contractual or regulatory reason to disclose an incident, you still have to disclose. But what you're paying for is you're paying to reduce the likelihood of stolen data showing up on the internet and creating harm either to you as an organization or to the actual owners of the data, whether it's an individual or a business partner or a customer. So switching gears to kind of look at, you know, this this sort of problem going forward. And as you noted, I mean, the, the long tail of this particular um, incident is, is certainly going to be impacting a lot of organizations for some time. Um, but in terms of thinking about how, you know, the effects of this long term uh, and also just as a trend, I mean, it seems like we should anticipate further activity like this, um, whether it's from groups like Fin11. Uh, you know, it seems like a piece of this is also the problem that um, while a lot of the threat actors that we see exploiting zero day vulnerabilities are nation state threat actors. And as I mentioned, um, and, and ones of which you've been involved in a lot this year, you know, China Nexus APTs of the financially motivated groups, a pretty significant amount of those that are exploiting zero days are those in the, the ransomware space and the extortion space. And it seems like there's probably a reinvestment of profits, you know, to purchase zero days or however they're acquiring them that this is going to continue to be a problem for some time. So I guess in terms of how organizations should think about that, and this could be from a patch prioritization standpoint, you know, maybe a bigger focus on hardening uh, file transfer services in particular, if you're worried about this threat actor, uh, but how should organizations kind of think about this as a problem going forward? Yeah, it, it is. It's such a tricky thing to, to figure out. And and I wish I had a great answer, but I think there's there's probably a lot of things that need to be done. And you know, part of it is it's it's a vendor um, opportunity to better harden their technology. And, and I'll give you maybe just one example of something that we've come across quite often. Uh, you know, as we see these closed box appliances that customers buy, and I'm talking about a you know a managed file transfer solution or a router or a security appliance. You know, in general, admins or customers of the technology don't have the ability to log into the device and to access the operating system and to see running processes or to install files. And so you can't deploy endpoint detection and response technologies to a router or to, you know, to many managed file transfer solutions. And so you got to rely on the vendor to, uh, you know, provide additional security hardening and security monitoring capabilities. And something that I found very commonly is that, 
these hardened devices don't have some checks that I would consider to be you know critical checks that need to exist on a system such that if, for example, a backdoor was deployed on an appliance, there should be some detection capability that creates an alert that um, you know looks for uh, anomalous files that are created or you know files that aren't digitally signed you know by the vendor. They, there should be some detection for this um, either in real time or when the appliance boots up. And we see some organizations they they have some boot up checks um, to see if there's any uh, you know uh, any unauthorized modules that were added to the device. One thing I also find is that. Many organizations don't have a good inventory of all the known good files and the authentic files that exist on the file system. And that's a that's a challenging thing for, for many folks in the security community to accept because for these closed box appliances, most of the files on the file system aren't changing at all. Uh, and anytime you issue a patch, it's the vendor that's issuing a patch. And so you could argue that you should be able to come up with an inventory of known good files that exist on the system. And if there's any deviation to that, any newly files created or any, you know, existing files that are modified, you should create some kind of alerting. And you know, as we've uh, you know seen in the past, you know, particularly with um, um, you know state-sponsored threat actors, they're not necessarily adding new files to the file system to create backdoors. They're editing legitimate files that already exist, and they're adding malicious capability and code to those existing files. Again, when you change the contents of a file, the hashes, the signature. Et cetera, they change, and you should be able to detect that. So, I think there's a certain level of accountability that uh, the vendors of technologies need to um, need to focus on, and I think this is going to be a continuing problem that has to be addressed over time. You know, from a customer perspective, um, you know, they, there's the the big question around, you know, how do you protect one firewall that could potentially be compromised? You put another firewall in front of it or behind it, and you know, it it, it creates lots of challenges. Um, but you got to focus on the things that you could probably do. Um, and, and one of those things that we, we tend to find that doesn't really happen um, as consistently as we'd like is the devices will generate a lot of security logging or security telemetry. And that device may keep that telemetry on the device itself, um, but it may not be forwarded to an external log source. And um, we, we very often see, you know, the first time we do an investigation at a company where they have a compromised device, we, we tend to find that the logs only lived on the device and they lived there for a certain period of time, uh, or they were uh, deleted by the threat actor or specific lines of the logs were deleted by the threat actor. Um, and they weren't, those logs weren't actually forwarded to another source that couldn't be edited uh, or were to be much harder for it to be edited. So, you know, it's a, it's a good reminder for, for organizations to uh, consume those logs and ship them off to a central place where, you know, they could, um, uh, you know, take, uh, you know, detective actions on it, but also go back in time if they're doing an investigation and determine what actually occurred on on the device. Uh, and then, you know, just continue to to ask and challenge the companies uh, that pr- you know produce technologies to, to continue to do offensive tests against it to see if the security controls that, that they built actually work. And there's a responsibility for the vendor to do that, but there's also a responsibility for the customer to to do a test in their environment to see have they configured the device in such a way that introduces vulnerabilities to them. Yeah, I was curious and I was going to ask you more about the logging piece, because that seems especially relevant for, again, some of those, you know, state sponsored uh, campaigns where uh, the goal is espionage and maintaining access for a long you know period of time. 
And when the, you know, breach investigation actually kicks off, maybe months, maybe even, you know, a year or longer uh, since the initial intrusion, you know, tracing that back uh, to initial infection or the earlier stages of that can be difficult without proper locking. But does that also have some relevance in a situation in an event like this, where the actions on target from a financially motivated actor are much swifter? Um, the importance of logging there is still, you know, key. Yeah, look, I, I think logging is important, um, you know, in, in any scenario that you just described. And look, there's also a question around, you know, what events should be logged and, and how long and how far back can you go? Because I'll tell you, there are certain types of events that we'd love to be able to log and love to be able to go back in time by, you know, 30 days or even longer um, that may not be practical to log. So, for example, on a, um, you know, on a uh, VPN appliance, it would be great to log all web requests to the device. And you'd love to be able to see even like more detailed information like post information um, because that could help you identify evidence of compromise um, or evidence of, a, of an attack. The challenge is, is there's a lot of web requests that are normally sent to a VPN appliance and it can easily fill up a hard drive. And so a lot of companies by default just simply don't do that. And, and it creates some challenges. Uh, there are other types of data that's also important that aren't specifically related to logs. So for example, when we find evidence of malware on a closed box appliance, we can tell the device is compromised, but we try to answer the question, how did it get compromised? And a lot of times it's because there was a particular vulnerability on the device or in the technology that allowed the attacker to get code to run on the, the machine. And a lot of times it's a you know buffer overflow type of security vulnerability. And so one thing that we will look for are, are crash dump files or logs um, on the device that may give us some kind of indication of whether or not a buffer overflow type of vulnerability was exploited that enabled the attacker to get that malicious code onto the device. And sometimes um, we, we come across devices where those crash dump files don't exist, maybe because the attacker deleted it, maybe it was never saved by the operating system, or maybe it's saved for some period of time, but it rolls over. Um, and so, you know, things like that are important for us to help figure out what actually went wrong when we find evidence of compromise on devices. Well, as we're wrapping up here, any sort of final thoughts on on this or um, kind of the overall trend of this type of activity where we will see extortion go uh, this year? Yeah, uh, look, I, I think we will see a continuation of what we've already seen from an extortion perspective, just in general. Most groups are going to continue to steal data and they're going to cause disruption to organizations and, and hope to get paid. It's such a lucrative attack that leads to a decent amount of money that these threat actors are getting. One thing that I am slightly nervous about is that there are certain threat actors that have have demonstrated and exercise other extortion techniques to apply pressure to individuals and um, to, to companies. I am afraid that those techniques will be adopted by more established threat actors that um, are are very broad and very um, you know, very prevalent in certain geographies. And we don't want that to happen, but it's certainly in the realm of possibility. But um, that's something that we all need to be mindful of as we as we think about this extortion threat moving forward. Well, we could do a whole episode just on that. Um, but I think, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Charles, always great to get your perspective uh, on things. Um, and thanks for for taking time and, and uh, sharing kind of your view on uh, this recent incident. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Luke.
Take care. Thanks.